Welcome to JPAM's Closer Look podcast. I'm your host, Seth Gershenson of American University, and I'll be talking to leading authors published in the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management on a variety of timely policy issues related to healthcare, education, environmental policy, immigration reform, economics, and more. The Journal of Policy Analysis and Management is currently hosted by the School of Public Affairs at American University, which also generously supports this podcast. American University's SPA, or School of Public Affairs, is the number 10th ranked School of Public Affairs in the nation by U.S. News, the number 4th ranked school in public management, number 8 in nonprofit management, and number 16 in both public policy and public finance and budgeting. The chief editor of JPAM is Erdal Tekin, also a professor of public policy at American University. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another installment of JPAM's Closer Look podcast. Today, I am joined by Jessica Galuli, an assistant professor of sociology and criminal justice at Suffolk University in Boston. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Seth. Yeah, I'm really happy to have you on today. We are going to talk about your article entitled Lights and Sirens, Variation in 911 Call Taker Risk Appraisal, and its effects on police officer perceptions at the scene. The article was published a few months ago in summer 2022. And before we get into the paper, I do want to mention that I understand congratulations are in order. This paper and you as the researcher were the recipient of JPAM's 2022 Vernon Memorial Award. That's correct. It was such an honor to be selected for this award. When I first got the email, I definitely thought it might have been spam. (laughs) What could this possibly be? And then I sent it to my advisor and he was like, oh, my God, this is a huge deal. So it was very exciting. And I'm very grateful to APAM and the selection committee for supporting my research in this paper. I think it's a a really well-deserved and and well-earned award and recognition because it is a really great paper. I think it's interesting on several different levels. I learned a lot about just 911 and the history of 911 in general, but also I think there's some important policy implications. Some of our longtime listeners might have heard of this award before. I'll give a quick recap. We try to have the award winner on the podcast every year. This year's no different. So APAM created the Raymond Vernon Memorial Award in 1985. Funding for the award comes from a special grant to APAM from John Wiley and Sons Publishers, the the publishers of JPAM, among other things. It was initially called the Vernon Prize. We added the word memorial after Raymond Vernon passed away in 1999. Raymond Vernon is a pretty unique and distinguished figure, both in academia and business and in public policy and in public service. Among his many lifetime accomplishments, He contributed to devising the Marshall Plan that rebuilt Europe after World War II. He led the development team for the Peanut M&M, which is pretty interesting and remarkable. And on the academic side and, and on the research side, he was one of the first to conduct quantitative analyses of financial data using computers. And that work and a lot of his career was spent on the faculty at Harvard University's Business School, and Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. 
And perhaps most relevant for us today, he was the founding editor of JPAM, of the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management. So again, congratulations on winning the award. And now that that we have some background on the award, we can talk about this important paper that is on the frequently timely and contentious issue of policing. So your paper studies 911 call centers. And basically, you're looking at how who picks up the phone call at the 911 call center, how that somewhat random occurrence or decision can influence police behavior at the scene. And this results in what you'd think of as a a public-initiated encounter with police or call-based policing. And so one of the first things I wanted to talk with you about is that I understand that there's some debate in the field of criminology generally about whether call-based policing is the best way to go about policing. What's the alternative to call-based policing and what are the trade-offs between the different approaches? Right. So typically the police come into contact with the public in two main ways, right? One is through officer-initiated stops. So that would be the alternative to call-based policing. Think traffic stops or pedestrian stops. Right. They see something and they interrupt. Exactly. And so for decades, much of the research in sociology and criminology has really focused on the social costs associated with that form of officer-initiated policing. Right. There's been loads of research on stop and frisk, on pretextual traffic stops, and all the ways in which officer discretion and bias and who they decide to stop and how they treat individuals, how that can contribute to racial disparities in policing. But the other side of policing is this responding to community member calls for assistance. So that's thinking about 911 calls or calls that are placed to a local non-emergency police number. And I think that a lot of that officer-initiated sort of research doesn't fully take into account that a lot of police work is actually driven by the call side, right? So in many places, nearly half of all police encounters stem from a caller request. It's really frequent occurrence. I think part of the reason call-driven side of policing has been a little bit less studied is because it's been seen as a little bit less costly, because it's the result of this seemingly democratic process. It's this idea. Anyone with a phone, regardless of your race, your religion, your sex, your zip code, you can dial 911 and ask for help. But I'd say that this system that's giving anyone with a phone direct access to the police actually does introduce its own set of challenges and costs. And those are things that we need to be really confronting and grappling more than we have. So for one, I'd say the public really gets wide latitude over defining the nature of police work when we think about call-driven policing. And not all of what the public calls about might need a police response or is best suited to get a police response. And so I actually worked as a 911 call taker during my doctoral program to learn firsthand about this call-taking process and saw some of these issues coming to light on the call-driven side of policing. So I remember I took calls from a man upset that his neighbor was plugging in outdoor Christmas lights into an exterior outlet, from a man who felt uncomfortable by how low a teenager's jeans were hanging at a bus stop, from a caller upset that their neighbor's peacock was defecating on their lawn, (laughs) 
And some calls were much more pernicious, right? I took calls from a woman in a public park reporting a black woman for being suspicious because she was using a public grill to quote unquote cook drugs, despite not even being close enough to really see the contents of the grill. All of these calls got a police dispatch, and I mentioned them just to highlight how the nature of caller demands and the limited responder options that are available to folks working inside call centers can produce unnecessary and at times troubling police encounters. And these encounters can be costly, right? They have the potential to escalate, to produce all sorts of harm, not to mention to waste scarce public resources. Some of those examples, I think, are really important to keep in mind when we think about, oh, you know, officer-initiated stops introduce potential biases and things on the part of the police officer, but there can be biases in in the people making the calls that lead to similar disparate outcomes in contact with the police. So you said about roughly half of police encounters are due to officer-initiated stops. The other half are due to public calls, whether it's to 911 or non-emergency line directly to the police station. Let's summarize your your main finding, and then we'll sort of circle back and and dig deeper and, and talk about the background. So you generally find that, yes, the person who answers the phone call matters, in the sense that when they answer the call, they then code the incident or code the call in a way that the responding officers see and might influence how those responding officers act at the scene. That's basically what you find, right? Yep, that's right. So we're going to talk a lot more about the details of like how that process plays out and, and so on. But before we do that, I'm curious just about the history of 911 in some sense and, and how pervasive it is throughout the country. I remember learning about 911 sometime when I was in elementary school, probably maybe third grade or so in the late 1980s. But I don't know, like thinking back on it, I don't remember if this was like a brand new technology or if it was just new to me. So when did 911 come about? And I feel like it's ubiquitous now. When did it become ubiquitous? Yeah, those are great questions. So I thought 911 had been around literally forever <laughs> until I started working on this project. And I learned that the very first call to 911 was placed in February of 1968 in Haleyville, Alabama. And so this first call came following the 1967 President's Commission on Law Enforcement and the Administration of Justice. And this commission was put together talked about all sorts of issues around law enforcement. But one of the things that came out of it was that officials called for the implementation of a universal emergency telephone number across the U.S. They thought that this universal number would allow for faster police responses to emergencies. And they thought that the current system at that time, which required the public to look up and dial a 10-digit police phone number, was just too burdensome to people. Right. So they did a review. They looked at a number of different places across the country. For example, they found Los Angeles County. They had 50 different telephone numbers for 50 different local police departments. They were like, this is just not efficient and it's going to slow down responses. It's inefficient on both sides in the sense that, you know, if you're out of town, you're not going to know the number to call. But if the number's the same, no matter where you are, that makes it easier for the caller. But then also on the on the call taking side, 
I assume that this sort of led to consolidated call centers in some sense. Yeah, so I definitely think on the caller side, like you said, it's much easier just to remember a three-digit number. Some people argue the 911 public awareness campaign is one of the most successful public awareness campaigns in the history of this country. Just like how you learned as a child, almost everyone has learned what 911 is and what it does. Yeah, in terms of consolidation, it does make it possible for different police agencies to kind of fall within different call center jurisdiction. So consolidated public safety answering point might dispatch out 10 or so or even more different police agencies. And the calls are all going to, when you dial 911, it'll route to one call center that's the closest geographically to where you are when you make the call. You said that about half the calls or half the encounters are the result of caller-initiated contacts. About how many 911 calls are made per day in the United States. Do you have a a rough idea of that? So the National Emergency Number Association, NINA, they keep track of some statistics around the 911 system for the country. And so they find an estimated 240 million calls are made to 911 in the U.S. each year. So those calls are answered by 911 operators in about 6,000 different public safety answering points across the country. And that's just 911. Presumably there's another number in the millions of phone calls that are going to non-emergency numbers? Yes, that's true. So numbers come in, as I had said, usually on either 911 lines into call centers and also these non-emergency police department numbers. The share of those calls really varies by agency. So I'm not aware of one national level statistic on that. But We have some evidence from studies, for example, researcher Cynthia Lum and her collaborators found that of the calls they observed in a dispatch center in Fairfax, Virginia, about 43 percent of the calls came in on 911 lines and the rest came in on non-emergency or alarm phone lines when an alarm company calls in to report an alarm going off. So at my own field site in Michigan, about 30 to 35 percent of the calls were coming in through the 911 lines and the rest through the non-emergency lines. So then if we're talking about like over the course of a year, there's at least tens, if not hundreds of millions of calls going to non-emergency lines too. Yeah, I think that's a good estimate. And some cities also have 311 lines on top of 911 and non-emergency police department lines where the public has another way to access government services. And some of those calls made to 311 end up getting some type of police response as well. So someone, you might call 311 about a blocked car in a certain city, homeless encampments. I recently learned from visiting a 311 center in California. People can take photos and text about homeless encampments around the city. And that information gets routed to the local police department to deal with potentially at a later time. Um, So that's another whole... What is the stated purpose of 311? That's a great question. I've heard some folks say it's sort of this idea of one call to city hall, right, that people within a city are able to easily make requests on city hall, whether it's about, you know, trash issues, streetlights out, sort of like city service sorts of things that might not make sense for a 911 or police department. But not every city has its own 311 system. Yeah, I could see how there's sometimes there's maybe a fuzzy line between like which which number you should call. Yes. 
That's for sure. And it's worth noting, I would say, the division of calls across these lines does not always map on to whether a call is actually an emergency or not. Sometimes people will call 911 to report a cat in a tree, and they'll call a non-emergency line to report an assault in progress. So we can't completely think like if it's coming in on a non-emergency line, it's something that's very, very low priority because people have really different conceptions about what is and is not an emergency. So that's just worth noting. And also, I guess in the heat of the moment, the person calling in might not even be thinking super clearly. Okay. And so that background makes it even more important, I guess, to think about the discretion of the person in the call center taking the 911 call because not only are they going to have some agency and discretion in in how they code it, but they also have to sort of interpret what the caller is saying. And the caller, you know, like we just said, they might be confused. They might not know exactly what's happening. They might be in shock, whatever. So this 911 call taker plays a really, really big role in the process, but we don't think about them much, or, or at least I never thought about them much. So could you walk us through the logistics of a call, like from the moment that a citizen makes the call to an officer arriving on the scene? What, what all happens in that process? Yeah, sure. So you are not alone when you say that you don't think that much about the 911 call taker. I would say it's really dispatch is sort of the black box of the criminal justice system. There's so much research on discretion among police officers, judges, corrections officers, everyone in the system, and very little kind of focused on the call taker. So yes, I'm happy to sort of explain that process. I can do it with a little bit of an example since how I usually think best. But say you're driving down the street, maybe you witness a vehicle, car crash on the side of the road, you dial 911 to report the incident. So your call is going to get routed to the nearest 911 center to your physical location at that time. And a 911 call taker is going to answer the phone. And they're going to ask you a bunch of questions. They're going to ask you your location. They're going to ask you probably your name, your phone number, and the nature of the problem. Like, what's going on there today? And while they're extracting this information from you, they have to do a few different things. So they're working on a computer-aided dispatch software screen, right? They have they actually have five or six computer screens in front of them. But they're typing into this program all the things that you are telling them over the phone. And they need to select a pre-existing incident category in the system to align with the problem you are reporting. So in this case, it's not going to be that hard, right? It's going to be a vehicle crash, something like that. They're going to pick that incident type. They're also, as I said, typing up some notes about the incident. They're not putting everything you're saying in there. They're putting what they think is critical information. Again, there's some subjectivity in what is critical and is not, and that might vary by call taker. And then they're going to have to prioritize the seriousness of the incident. Right. So some dispatch software, as soon as you pick vehicle crash, it automatically picks a priority number for you. Other cities, other places, the call taker might select their own priority level on top of the incident type, right? If it's a delayed crash, maybe that's lower priority than a crash that just happened 30 seconds ago. So after doing all of that, the call taker drops that information into a pending queue on the computer screen. And usually the high priority calls rise to the top of the queue. And then the dispatcher, which is usually a different position within a center, they manage the allocation of the responding police units. So they decide which unit's closest, which one's going to go, and they'll transmit 
that information that the call taker collected over the radio to the responding officer. And when you said that the high priority calls go to the top of the queue, the definition of high priority is very dependent on how the call taker coded the call. Yes. So the call taker is making most of the decisions here in terms of coding the incident and if they are selecting the priority level or if that's automatically determined by the incident code they've selected, they're making most of the choices. The dispatcher is pretty much adhering to whatever the call taker has chosen, right? They're not usually on the phone with the caller. They don't have all that same information um, in many places. So I'd say the call taker has a lot of discretion. And in the example I just gave you, things were pretty cut and dry, right? A vehicle crash doesn't allow for a lot of ambiguity. But what happens when a caller reports something far less clear, right? Something like a passerby reporting a man on a porch trying to get in a front door. Is that man breaking in? Are they just locked out? Do they just need an assistance with a key, right? Things get really complicated really quickly. And that's where this sort of gray area can become very difficult when you are trying in the moment to code a call and to get it right. And this really is like a, a split second decision that the call taker is making, right? They can't sit and think about it. They have to make a, an immediate decision. Yeah, the decisions have to be made really fast and with limited information. And right now, there's really severe staffing shortages at dispatch centers across the U.S. And so that means there's even more pressure to get off the phone as quickly as you can just to be free to answer another incoming 911 call. Because you don't know what's on the other side of that call until you're able to pick it up, right? It could be a life or death emergency. And so there's even more pressure. And I've seen this firsthand at a few dispatch centers across the country this past year of 911 calls on hold and call takers not being free to be able to answer them and, and the added stress that that can add. Do you have an idea of what the average salary or wage is for the call takers across the country? I mean, I'm sure it varies a little bit, but... Yes, it definitely varies a little bit. I've seen kind of 40s to 50s, in many places. I was just out in California where the cost of living is much higher and the starting salary was just over 100000 which seemed really high, but everyone was like, it's actually not when you live in a very, very expensive city in California. So it's usually a salary, not an hourly job? It's usually, well, that varies too. Many places I've seen it's a salaried position. Sometimes there might be part-time call taking in addition to full-time positions that could be hourly. Okay. That's like a 40-hour-a-week. Well, it actually, overtime is really common in call centers right now. Because of the shortages, yeah. Exactly. It can turn into 60, 70-hour weeks. Call takers can be working 12, 16-hour shifts with very small breaks in there. And someone has to work overnight, too. Yes. Yep. It's 24-7. I guess part of what the wage is compensating for is the 24-hour-a-day nature of the job. I mean, it's unsurprising that there's staffing challenges and... Not only is it a, a stressful job, but it's also, you know, it involves working over the holidays, overnight, things like that. So I want to come back to the, you know, they're making this split-second decision in, in stressful situations. They classify the incident. The computer system puts the high urgency calls towards the top. Are there ever lower urgency incidents that, for whatever reason, don't even merit a police response? Or is sort of it, by rule, every call gets at least checked up on? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And that varies a little bit by agency, too. So certainly there are some calls that do not get a response because the nature of the call is not one that would benefit from a response. For example, if you're calling and you're a lost driver and you're asking for directions, that's something a call taker can just handle by themselves. And they can, if they have the time, give the caller the directions they need. Sometimes someone calls in specifically saying, like, I want to be transferred over to the jail to talk to someone, or I want to be transferred to some other city agency. And that would just be a transfer. And that would not require a police response. I think it gets a little bit more complicated with calls in which the motivation behind it might be a little bit suspicious to a call taker. So racially biased calls, they've been all over the news and the media. Is suspicious person calls, right? Is it really suspicious for someone to just be walking down the street and they look a little bit different to you? You know, some call centers will say that does not warrant a response. There's no actual behavior that's being described that's suspicious there. And they might give the call taker the authority to say, you know what, no, that's not going to receive a response. Other agencies might not take that risk. They might say someone has called in, they're a member of the public, they pay taxes, they want a service, and we are here to provide that customer service to them. And that might end up getting a response. And so that decision about whether a call gets a response or not kind of falls under this gatekeeping feature or function that call takers, I argue, play in this whole process. Right. And how empowered are they in that role is sort of a question I think that's still outstanding and call centers are struggling with, especially with so many calls coming in and staffing shortages and all of that. But that is another decision point. Well, and that brings up the other thing that thinking through all these issues made me wonder about was a legal liability question of what happens if there is a seemingly innocuous or seemingly incorrect call and you say, oh, you know, that's not an emergency. We're not going to waste time and resources on it. But then it turned out that it, that it was. Is there sort of a sense of like better safe than sorry, better make the call or make the, you know, send out a police response? So liability is a key piece, I think, in all of this. The reason why I had sent police to that call about the woman cooking drugs on the grill and the jeans hanging low and all of those calls was because of really strong pressure within the dispatch center, both to provide customer service and to avoid liability. So there are mottos that float around dispatch centers, like when in doubt, send them out. This idea that on the off chance, there might be a crime at the bottom of one of these calls or something bad were to happen because the police were not sent out, the fault would come back to the call taker, so you're better off just sending. And that issue of liability, that was stressed frequently during my own call taker training. You know, we learned that civil lawsuits could be brought against you for negligence. Also just feelings of guilt, right? You don't provide help and help was needed. That can be difficult also. I've seen a handful of cases in the news over the years like this where someone didn't send help and are, are held liable for it. I wouldn't say it's very common. But it's like a looming threat. Yes, exactly. It's that idea. It's often thrown around that it's just better to send an over-response than an under-response. It's better to send than not send. And I think right now we're at a moment where this is a little bit being challenged with kind of the growth of alternative responder programs, right? This idea of sending out non-police, but medics or social workers or clinicians 
out to deal with certain sorts of calls. You know, some places are like, the liability is so great. What if something bad happens and we didn't send the police? But I think other places are starting to reassess what risk really means and how these assumptions is better to oversend than undersend might actually create problematic outcomes themselves. Right. I was thinking that the liability can also go the other way of a overly forceful response to a incorrect call that creates a, a police interaction that was unnecessary and ends up causing harm. It's definitely a it's a tough job and there are certainly arguments to be made both ways I suppose. But setting aside the issue of whether or not there is a police response, it's, it sounds like usually there is. What your papers really getting at and exploiting is the fact that there's on the intensive margin a good deal of variation a good deal of discretion in how the incident is coded and described and there's going to be a police response either way probably but due to the way it's described due to the way it's coded by the call taker the first responder is going to see that and their behavior is likely going to be influenced by the particular way the call was coded. Yes, that's right. So I'm really focused on the calls that got a police response, which, as you said, is the vast majority of those calls, and then how those calls were processed and coded. A lot of the calls that don't get a response at all are not coded, are not contained in the, in the data, in the administrative data. So there's not a good way to understand you know, which calls didn't get a response at all. And a lot of these subtle, I mean, these differences are, I'm assuming, sometimes quite subtle. And it makes total sense to me that even subtle differences in how the calls described and coded would influence the officers that are responding. Because the officer arrives with some sort of preconceived notion of what the problem is, of who needs to be approached first, whatever. You know, the caller could have been wrong in a way that influenced the call taker. The call taker could have been wrong in how they coded it. But whether they're wrong or not, you know, the information that the police officer has is the best information and the only information they have to go on, presumably. And that's going to affect how they behave on the scene, right? Yeah. So that's basically the main idea of the paper. I think initially, I really just wanted to test whether there was significant variation among call takers and how they classify the same types of calls, not even thinking about the police response at that point, just because so little research has, has looked at systematically what's going on inside dispatch centers. And then I started reading some research in psychology on priming and cognitive bias called anchoring bias. And that made me wonder, you know, is this variation inside dispatch might it actually have consequences down the road on police officer action? This idea of anchoring bias basically predicts if you're going to prime police for a risky encounter, they're going to be more likely to perceive of the incident in those terms when they show up. And there was a little bit of work already out there by Paul Taylor on dispatch priming in a video simulation game where he found that officers were more likely, I think, to view a suspect as having a weapon if they were primed that way by dispatch instead of being primed that the person had a cell phone, things like that. So I wanted to test some of that out with administrative data rather than kind of a video simulation game. I think that that first stage question of do the call takers vary is interesting and important on its own, but then tying it to the actual outcomes, the, the police responses is so important too. So 
This reminds me of the elementary school game Telephone, where we lined up and the first person in the line had some sort of secret message or story. And they would tell the person behind them, then they'd tell the person behind them, and, and the message would get passed down the line. And more often than not, the original message was sort of totally undistinguishable from what ended up getting to the person at the end. And here we have a real incident that happens. A citizen makes a call. The call taker takes the call, codes it. Then the dispatcher sends out a responding officer. The message, the information can get garbled along the way if the information in the start was even accurate. So is that a reasonable way to think about what's happening? Yes. A game of telephone, I think, is a great way to think about it. Each stage of the process, information can get distorted. And I think I was really interested in seeing if that game plays out differently for similar types of caller problems, depending on which call taker happened to pick up the phone in that sequence. And this reminds me of research on teachers in my field of education research, where different teachers will interpret a classroom incident in very different ways. And the students are then receive different punishments or different grades or, or whatever for objectively similar behaviors. And so in that sense, I think a lot of your work does align with psychology, like you said, and ideas of implicit bias, of stereotypes. And that's a natural way that humans process and react to information, especially in when they have to make a split-second decision. Does knowing that humans are subject to these different biases and heuristics change the way that we should organize call centers and train the call takers? Yeah. So I think that your comparison to teachers in that example is really useful and, and other kind of frontline street level bureaucrat level workers like police officers, welfare caseworkers, all of these folks have some individual human subjectivity in what they're doing. But I'd say it's also really important to consider the institutional context in which these individuals are working. So yes, some of my story here is about individual call taker action, but I think it's also about what happens when organizations provide either vague or conflicting or insufficient guidance to their workers. So I've reviewed some of the national call taking standards. There's some like best practice models out there that some organizations have put out and also rules from my own field site where I worked. And what I've noticed is that they often assume that callers present their problems in what I say organizationally relevant ways, right? Like that example, you call in and say, there's a vehicle crash and I'm the call taker. And I say, perfect, this is a vehicle crash. It's all cut and dry and very simple. But in reality, like I said, very few callers present their problems that way. They tell long narratives. They present multiple related crimes in the same call. They might have incomplete information. You might be suspicious of why they called in in the first place. And I'd say there's just not a lot of talk and discussion about the hard realities of that part of the call-taking process, right? Instead, these blunt adages are sort of relied upon, like, just send them out or better to send an over-response. And so I think when we think about training and, and places for reform, having more learning sessions, debriefing opportunities, ways to kind of understand how call takers process the more ambiguous, uncertain, difficult calls 
what they're doing on those calls, what best practices might look like, how to share those best practices across the center for other call takers. I think all of that could help bring call takers a little bit more in line with one another in terms of how they process those calls. I think that makes sense. And we'll talk more about the the policy implications towards the end. But yeah, at a basic level, just acknowledging that some calls, you know, not all calls are the same and therefore they shouldn't be handled using the same protocol, I think is a really good point. So now that we have a good sense of, you know, how the process works and the hypothesis that that you're testing here, let's get into the uh, empirics of your analysis a little bit. Your data is from one particular call center, which I believe is the one that you worked at. And this is in Southeast Michigan. I don't know how much you can say about this, but in terms of, is it near Detroit? Is it more urban or rural? What sort of geographic area was the call center covering? Can you give us a little bit of background on that? Sure. So the call center was about an hour outside of Detroit. It is a consolidated public safety answering point, which means that handles requests from, in this case, 95% of the county in which it's located. And so it dispatches for six different police agencies across over 20 different cities, townships, and villages within the county. So it's one of the busiest call centers within the state because there are all these different kind of agencies that that have been consolidated under the call center there. Um, And there's Definitely a range of very rural areas and then more kind of urban, dense places within the county. So representative of a lot of parts of the country in some sense. And then who are the call takers in terms of like age, demographics, but also what kind of education and credentials and training do they have and receive? What does the hiring process look like? Yeah. So at the time of the study, there were about 30 call takers and dispatchers working at this particular center. They were mostly white females. So about 76% of the staff in dispatch were female and 93% were white. And just over 50% had 10 or more years of job experience. Interestingly, compared to any other part of the the organization in terms of the police within this area or the corrections, this was by far the most female and most white place within kind of the criminal justice system. And I, I think generally dispatch centers tend to be more heavily female than the police forces in which they're dispatching for, which I think is an interesting gender dynamic inside dispatch. Is the call center contracted out to a a private firm or is this run by the county? It's run by a sheriff's department within the county. So it's not contracted out to a private. In terms of training and credentialing, the hiring process itself is pretty lengthy to become a call taker. I had to go through it. So it took me about four months from start to finish. Uh, It involved background investigations with detectives, multiple rounds of interviews, psychiatric evaluation, computerized call taking simulation tests that you had to score so high on in order to move on in the process, a drug test, a hearing test, observation period inside dispatch for about almost a full shift. So there were a lot of steps in the hiring process, and a lot of people fall out. It was the most intense job I've ever applied for, which I wasn't expecting in terms of a hiring process. But a lot of people fall out along the way, which is another issue with the staffing shortage, because it is a pretty involved process. Were you doing this with eyes towards the research and better understanding the process? Yeah, I was in my doctoral program. I had gotten, actually, some of the quantitative data first 
from the call center. And I realized I didn't understand what any of the abbreviations meant or the variable names. And so I went to, to kind of meet with uh, one of the heads of the 911 center there to ask all these questions. And then kind of an opportunity came up to actually apply for the job. And I thought it was just really important to try and understand the institutional context as much as I could before kind of publishing research about it. And so, yeah, I, I joined the organization and learned a lot. That's the best way to really uh, learn and understand the institution. So that's the call center and the employees, the call takers who were mainly interested in. Now, the actual administrative data that you use, that's at the call level. So for each incoming phone call, you have a record of that in your spreadsheet. And I mean, I assume you know like the time and date of the call, some basic coding of the call. What else do you observe about each particular call? So as you said, spreadsheet with a lot of information in it. So each row was a unique incident. And then those incidents had a variable or a column that said whether or not it started as a 911 call or a non-emergency call or a proactive stop, an officer-initiated stop. So I didn't look at the proactive officer-initiated stops since those are not things that call takers have any discretion over. I looked only, I kept the incidents that had started with either the 911 call or the non-emergency call. And then other information in the data set, like you said, it talked about the date, the time, the location, which call taker handled that incident, the call code that they selected, right? So was it suspicious person breaking and entering? The associated priority level that comes with that call code. So, you know, shots fired, high priority call has a certain high number that goes along with it. And then also the data tells you the call code the officer selected once at the scene. Right. So once the officer gets there, they see what's going on. They then have to log into the system and say what it was. Was it a breaking and entering? Was it a suspicious person? And that, again, has an associated priority level. And so that was really key. And the officers at the scene are, are picking from the same menu of options that the call taker is picking from? Yeah, pretty much those. They have some additional call codes that they can select from just because there's I think officers have even more options when they're out in the field, but pretty much they're aligned. They're selecting from similar sets of, of codes. And that was really key because I was trying to compare sort of this initial call code to the final call code by the officer at the scene. That's great that the menus are more or less the same because that does let you sort of see if they agree or not, which is sort of key to what you're doing here. And then you use that data to create your own variable that is key to your analysis, which you call call taker alarmism. And I think that's one of the main innovations of your paper that, you know, everything that you do. How do you create that call taker alarmism variable and, and how do we interpret it? Or I guess we're really, we're interpreting like the distribution of it across all the call takers, right? Yes, that's right. So it took a really long time to settle on a term for this. And alarmism was the one that I reached eventually. But basically what this measure is doing is it's predicting a call taker's propensity to classify a given call coming in as something high priority. And that measure is based on information from all the prior and all the future calls a given call taker has handled in the data set. So in more concrete terms, 
you know, say someone dials 911 to report a man yelling loudly in the street and he starts, upon further questioning, the callers start saying that the man wants to, quote unquote, hurt himself and die. So if you had answered that call, you were the call taker, you might have decided to classify that incident as a high priority suicidal subject call, right? There's someone that said they wanted to die, they wanted to hurt themselves. But if I had answered that call as a call taker, I might not have made the same choice, right? I may have decided to classify it as something lower priority, like a welfare check, given the man didn't have like specific plans, all all these other things that you could think about. And so my research design is really trying to leverage the fact that whether this call was classified as the high priority suicidal subject or a lower priority thing like a welfare check, it's not the result of the nature of the report because you and I are getting the same information It's really the result of our underlying alarmism level of who happened to pick up the phone, right? Or you might be a little bit more of an alarmist, more likely to say, ah, this is a high priority. I got to send the police immediately. And I might have been a little bit more chill or laid back on that call. And so that's sort of what the alarmism measure is trying to capture. And so how much variation was there in the measure across the call takers? There was significant variation. I think moving from the least alarmist to the most alarmist call taker increased the probability of high priority call classification by about 18 percentage points. So you can actually plot out the distribution of the alarmism measure and it kind of makes this bell curve-ish shape and you can see it in the paper. And so you can see moving from someone like all the way on the far left, the least alarmist to the far right, most alarmist, that increases the probability that a call is going to be high priority by about 18 percentage points. Which seems like a lot. I think it's a significant amount of variation there. And it makes sense to me that that would look like a bell curve type distribution in that there's a bunch of sort of average-ish people that are in the middle, but then there's a handful of outliers that are overly alarmist and uh, some other outliers that are underly alarmist, that are too chill. You know, you're comparing which type of call taker picks up the phone is going to affect the police response. And then, of course, the other question is, okay, so what determines who picks up the call? It sounds like it's somewhat random who answers which call. How does that decision get made in the call center? And why is that randomness so important to your analysis? So the research design really hinges on the random assignment of call takers to calls. So if there is random assignment, then we can assume on average over time, all call takers at the center are receiving a similar mix of calls. So then if we find some call takers have way higher propensities to code calls as high priority than other call takers, that suggests something about the underlying tendency of those call takers. Because on average, in theory, we should all be getting sort of a similar mix of calls that get coded high priority and those that don't. So like you said, the question becomes, are the call takers actually randomly assigned to calls? And so this is, again, where institutional context can really help in a research design. So at this center, when a call came in, a speaker would blare out a ringtone across the whole room, and any call taker on duty can press a button on their keyboard to answer that incoming call. So you really have no information about the nature of the problem before you 
you've picked up the phone. And then once you've picked up the phone, there's no transfer of calls between call takers, right? I can't pick up and say, oh, I don't want to deal with this. I'm going to send it to Seth to deal with today, right? You're kind of stuck with the call that you've picked up. That being said, there are a couple possibilities for some non-randomness to come in, which I control for in the design. So first, call takers have some control over their work schedules in terms of which shift they might want to work and which day of the week. So it's possible some call takers, they might work more weekends or more midnight shifts when there could be a higher potential for more serious calls to come in. And so without including controls in the model, we might worry, right, that the instrument isn't really capturing differences in alarmism. It's just capturing the fact that I work midnights and that's when really serious calls come in. So, of course, I'm going to look like I'm more of an alarmist, right? Yeah. So you control for the time the calls come in. Yeah. The shift that the calls come in on, whether it came in on a weekend or a weekday, and then also whether it came in on an emergency line or a non-emergency line. Because when that ringtone plays out, they play out slightly different audio sounds. Like the emergency line is like way more shrill and stressful (laughs) to hear. So the policy says that call takers ought to answer all of the ringing 911 lines first before any non-emergency line, right? So this shouldn't be a problem, but in reality, it's possible a call taker could decide, I don't want to answer as many 911 calls today and try and answer more non-emergency numbers. And then again, we might worry, right, that instruments not capturing our underlying alarmism tendencies. It's capturing the fact that that call taker didn't answer the 911 calls that day. They were trying to avoid them. So just to be on the safe side, I also include that as a control in the model. So by doing that, it allows me to basically compare calls at risk of being assigned to the same set of call takers, right? Those working similar shifts, similar days, answering the same types of phone lines. And so that, you know, pseudo-randomness combined with adjusting for time, date, and phone line of the call, that answers your first question about just simply, do the call takers vary in propensity to designate things as high risk? Then the second question is, okay, how does that alarmism measure affect police decisions And to answer that part of the question, you use an instrumental variables strategy, which I always like to think of as as kind of a a chain reaction type strategy where you estimate the causal effect of the code assigned by the center, by the call taker on the police response. But you also look at what started that chain reaction, which was who answered the phone call at the call center. And since that part of it was random, you're basically using that variation and only that variation to estimate the causal effect of the call center's code on the police's code in a way that almost mimics a a random experiment where the code was randomly assigned. Is that a reasonable description of the the instrumental variable strategy that you use? Yes. And I think I personally think it instrumental variable approaches can get a little confusing. So I appreciate that you repeated it back to me. I try and think about it most simply as saying that I want to be able to isolate the effect of the call taker from the effect of the facts on the ground, that underlying nature of the call on policing outcomes. Because without that approach, it would be really hard to know the impact of call taker discretion on police, because of course we would expect more severe calls 
to both be given higher priority by the call taker and to be dealt with more severely by officers at the scene. So I'm trying to isolate out what's the effect of the call taker from the underlying kind of facts on the ground about that call. And when you do that, when you do isolate the randomness due to the call taker's level of alarmism, what exactly do you find in terms of an effect on police decisions? I find a pretty significant, large effect. So I find that for calls on the margin of being high priority, they're often referred to as compliers, in which I learned recently, <laughs> referred to as compliers in the IV literature because the call taker assignment, which call taker you got, that's what induced the change in the call classification decision. Those calls are about 30 percentage points more likely to be classified as high priority at the scene by the police. 30 percent. 30 percentage points. Uh, Percentage points. Yes. So we can think about calls for which that call taker assignment kind of brought about the high priority classification. They're about three times more likely to be classified as high priority by the police at the scene. So three times is pretty significant. It's a large effect. And so I think this means the way call takers exercise their discretion can have real consequences for how police perceive of what's going on at the scene. What does that mean for the individuals, not the police responders, but the actual individuals involved in the situation, in the event that prompted the call? So I think it can result in real effects for the people on the ground. So in another paper I published uh, in Criminology and Public Policy, I look at the 911 call and the decisions made by 911 operators in the incident that led to the arrest of Harvard professor Henry Louis Gates Jr. at his own front door. In that call, I argue the call taker and dispatcher made several escalating decisions And those contributed to the tense exchange and temporary arrest, even, of Professor Gates outside his own front door. After that incident, the sergeant who responded to it shared with a committee that part of his aggressive attitude at the scene was because he had been prepared by dispatch for a really serious, in-progress, breaking and entering call, despite the caller kind of being super unsure and saying they might have been locked out and all of these other things. And so I I talk about that just to say that there can be real effects when you prime officers for kind of more aggressive, more heightened encounters. They might be going lights and sirens. In that case, the officer, the sergeant drove the wrong way down a one way to get to the incident as fast as he could. So there's adrenaline. There's all of that is in the background and can potentially shape the officer behavior when they get there. And so we want to be really careful to make sure that we are priming officers as accurately as we can, right? It'll never be perfect, but to try and try and get it right as much as we can because officers have, they have handcuffs, they have weapons. Like this is not meaningless, right? These responses really matter and are important, I think. No, definitely important and very challenging and difficult problems to think through because there are real consequences and high stakes, like you said, but also there's just so much uncertainty about the whole thing. So going back to the results, I did want to ask, and I guess related to the example about Professor Gates too a little bit, what differences did you see, if any, maybe across geographic locales, like urban versus rural communities, or maybe due to different types of calls? 
And I mean, I can think of, of several reasons why the effects might vary, but, but I'm curious if you were able to look at any of that. So I did look at differences across types of calls. So I looked specifically at issues involving mental health crises, intimate partner violence, and public assaults. And the reason I kind of looked at those categories is that they had multiple incident types under them that straddled priority levels, right? It's like that mental health example. That could be coded as that high-priority suicidal, a medium-priority welfare check, or lower-priority, what they call emotionally disturbed person call in the CAD system. The same for public assaults. They sort of like straddle across these different priority levels, but they have similar sorts of categories, right? Like a felonious assault, a simple assault, a disorderly, things like that. So I wanted to look at those categories, and I did find slightly different effects. So for mental health calls, for which that call taker assignment induces the high priority classification, they're almost six times more likely to be classified as high priority by the police when they go out to a call involving mental health. I think part of the story there might be, you know, there's a lot of ambiguity around issues of mental health and how to think about coding that and classifying it. And so it's possible officers are more likely to rely on what the call taker said in that situation when, when they're out the scene. I also looked at, as I said, the public assault calls. There was another positive strong effect. It was less large, though, than for the mental health calls. I found for these... When call taker assignment induced that high priority classification, they were about two times more likely to be classified as high priority by the police, which is still pretty high, especially when you think about a felonious assault involves a deadly weapon of some sort, usually, or some sort of weapon there. So an officer can't just say there's a weapon when there isn't. So there's still some priming going on there, even though there's also a little bit less ambiguity in the definitions than under the mental health calls, potentially. Well, you would also ask about geographic location, and I think that's a place for future research to really look at. I was really interested in saying, are responses heightened or is this priming more of a phenomenon in majority black or majority white neighborhoods, and how might that play out? I ended up kind of including census geography as fixed effects in my model to control for within it, and so then it made it difficult to look across geographic region in the analysis. But I think other future researchers could try and look more at, at that geographic question and how that impacts priming and all of these phenomena. The sociodemographics of the communities could matter. I was also, I guess my question was partly motivated by the idea that population density might change how well you know your neighbors, how well you know the people in your community, and that might make certain callers maybe more informed or less informed. That's definitely an interesting area for future work, and I'd be curious to see what you or others find there. But as it stands, I mean, you see this sort of strong, I think two to three time increases are big effects and significant effects for a variety of types of calls. There's clearly an effect here, and it clearly matters who answers the phone. But then I got to thinking, okay, this effect or this correlation should be there, but you don't find like a, an exact one-to-one -one mapping of what the call taker says perfectly predicts what the police say. And this got me thinking like, what is the right mapping that we should see, right? It shouldn't be one-to-one -one in the sense that the call taker is making a decision with imperfect information, then the police officer goes to the scene and has new information. So they should update 
update the coding to something that's more accurate. Do we think, A, that the police on the ground are making a more accurate coding? And if they are, what would you expect like the optimal relationship to be? So I think, like you said, police, when they show up, right, they're going to make some of their own determinations at the scene. They're not just robots who are going to do whatever the call taker said. So their behavior is not going to be perfectly predicted by what happens inside dispatch. They, you know, they needs to be certain evidence present for officers to say certain types of incidents happen. They're going to do interviewing. They might talk to witnesses. They're going to have to make some of their own decisions there. I think in terms of the optimal mapping, I guess the way I think about it is just the goal to me should be to try and minimize the number of times police are unnecessarily primed for high priority encounter, given all of the effects that, that can come from that. So I, I've looked like descriptively at, at some data on a different project, just seeing like how often is it that police show up and they downgrade what the call taker had put in versus upgrading what the call taker incident had been. And they are far more likely to be downgrading the type of incident relative to what the call taker put in. And of course, part of that could be maybe by the time they get there, the incident's no longer as heated as it was when the initial call came in, right? There's a little bit of time delay there. The call taker could have received imperfect information, like you had said. But it's just so prevalent. And on top of my own institutional knowledge of working there, that pressure to sort of send over response as being the safest thing to do doesn't surprise me that it's playing out a little bit more so that it's we're unnecessarily priming officers, I think, in some ways for these high priority encounters. So, of course, we want officers to be primed appropriately as, as much as we can. We, Like you said, we don't want to be too chill about it. But I think the goal should be to try and minimize the over priming that might happen. So, Relatedly, then, we're probably doing a little bit of overpriming to ensure that whether it's for liability reasons or, or legitimate sort of, we want to make sure that a reasonable response is sent. What should we take away from these findings at the policy level? And really, there's not one policy level. I feel like there's several different levels to think about what we're doing here. One of them is is how the police respond to a call. One of them is how the call centers take and code the calls. Another is how, how the call takers are trained and evaluated. And and I didn't ask about this, but maybe even is there some sort of performance metric where they're eventually taken out of the system because they're just not very good at it? You know, how call takers are trained. And then lastly, since it's the public who initiates all this stuff, and you mentioned that 9-11 public information campaign was very successful years ago. I almost wonder if it's time for a new campaign to like remind people how to use 911 and what an emergency is and what an emergency is not. So I, I can imagine even a, a new sort of policy or campaign targeted towards the public. So those are the four sort of avenues for policy implications that, that I thought about. But I'm curious to hear what you think about those four ideas and any other ideas that you might have as well. I think that those are great takeaways. I'm glad you got them from the paper. Just to talk about the public for a minute, because I think that that is a really key piece here. A lot of kind of call takers and supervisors I've talked to at different dispatch centers across the country have talked about this need for more or newer public awareness campaigns about what is appropriate usage of 911, and also the fact that you might need to stay on the phone a little bit longer and answer 
the questions, right? A lot of people call in and they they don't want to have to answer a bunch of questions. They just want help sent. And I understand, like, sometimes it's life and death and they want help as soon as they can. Often help can be on the way while you're still trying to ask more questions and gather more information. And so kind of telling the public you might have to provide more information because information helps, you know, set up a better response that I think can be part of that public awareness campaign. But also it's really hard to figure out what the definitions are around what is and is not an emergency. And I've noticed throughout history, I've looked at some historical work on, on the call for service system. Police leaders have repeatedly kind of skirted the question of defining that term and leaving it up to kind of the public. I think it's at least time to talk about that and confront the reality that we have created a system in which people are calling about all sorts of things because there's really not a lot of other 24-7 things to be able to call into. That creates a problem. So I do think the public awareness campaign is important there. In terms of the training within the call taking, the call centers, I think that that's really key too. So I had a few of ideas about that. You know, one policy recommendation would simply be to present call takers with performance feedback. So one of the things when you answer 911 calls, you often never find out the result of the call. Someone I worked with used to say it's like reading a thousand novels and only ever reading the first chapter. And I thought that was a great way to think about inside 911, right? You got a call and then you just jump to the next one. That's surprising because I had assumed that there'd be some measure of like, the call takers never learn how accurate they are. Very rarely. Sometimes, you know, if it's a really big incident. And that doesn't affect promotions or raises or anything. There's some quality assurance checks randomly that might happen in a center where a supervisor might listen to tapes to see how a call has been handled. But it's not the way you're not getting some document that says, oh, here's your level of alarmism and how it compares to everyone else in the center. And I actually think that could be really useful to kind of tell and show coworkers how they compare to one another, just because you often don't know what your coworkers are doing or how they're handling a call. So you might be motivated to change your behavior simply from discovering that you might differ from the average. Kind of a related recommendation I've been thinking about is having more opportunities to share experiential knowledge among coworkers. So there's very little time inside the call center for that sort of collaborative learning to happen. But a lot of call takers, they have certain practices, creative practices that they've come up with to deal with difficult callers or to try and get information when someone doesn't want to give that information over the phone. And these are really great techniques, but they're often not like codified or shared throughout a center very well. And so figuring out how to kind of learn those best practices and share them and having more opportunities from learning from one another, I think, could also help bring call takers more in line with one another. And then third kind of policy recommendation would involve providing call takers with a little bit more guidance. So some more specific definitions or criteria for the really subjective incident types. So I had talked about looking at the mental health and the public assault calls. I also looked at intimate partner violence calls. Think, you know, could range from domestic violence to something lower priority like a family trouble. And I actually did not find much variation across call takers within that category of calls. 
And I think part of the reason there is because there's really clear criteria about what constitutes a high-priority domestic call inside the call center. There's a definition. There has to have been a physical assault. There has to be a certain relationship that exists between the victim and the assailant. It's just like really clear, right? And so I think there's a little bit less variability when you look at those call types that have more criteria included around them. And so I know some other cities like Philadelphia, they're attempting to add more objective criteria to behavioral health calls to give a little bit more of a definition and things like that to help call takers kind of code them better. And they're also, as well as other centers across the country, embedding clinicians inside 911 centers to further help call takers more accurately classify calls that might have some sort of mental health or behavioral health component to them. So I think kind of all those things together can maybe help call takers, give them the tools they need to be able to feel confident in the coding and classifying and and all of that work that they do. No, that makes a lot of sense. One of your ideas about having the the call takers either talk with each other or, or learn about how each other, you know, how their colleagues code calls relates to a thought I had, again, sort of relating to education and how teachers are evaluated is having multiple performance metrics, I guess the analog here would be to have a second or a third person listen on a call and sort of blindly see how two or three different people code the same call. And whether that's used as an assessment of some sort or in real time to sort of give police or the dispatcher more information about how multiple people coded the same call. I realized knowing what I now know about the personnel shortage, that is probably not going to happen anytime soon. But I, it seems like there's some merit to the idea. And related to that and the personnel shortage, the other thing that came to mind uh, as I was thinking about sort of where do we go from here is some sort of machine learning or voice recognition software being involved to take the human element out of the process curious if you have any thoughts about that or have heard of anybody or any agencies thinking about doing that. Yeah. So in terms of the multiple people listening on a call, I think it's a great idea. Like you said, I think staffing is an issue there. But I think there can be some after the fact sorts of instant reviews that can be useful for learning moving forward. And some of that quality assurance that goes on, a supervisor will listen to a random sample of calls and see how those go or a step in that direction. But you know, a call taker might not find out anything unless they've made a mistake. And then it becomes sort of like this disciplinary thing, which isn't quite the same as organizational learning, right? It's It feels a little bit more like, oh, you're in trouble. And I think that just having people listen to calls together and training sessions and things like that could be a little bit more productive in learning and not have that disciplinary side of it. In terms of The machine learning and AI, I've seen there's a few studies that looked at computer algorithms to assist in medical emergency call taking. So there's actually a pretty recent study in 2021. They looked at the effect of machine learning on dispatchers recognizing out-of-hospital cardiac arrests during calls. So they found that the machine learning alerts had higher sensitivity than the dispatchers who didn't get those machine learning alerts. But they also found that there were more false positives with the machine learning. So overall, I feel like the findings were sort of like it didn't actually translate into improved cardiac arrest recognition by dispatchers on the whole because it was more sensitive, but there were also more false positives. And so 
I don't know how to think about AI. I sometimes wish I knew more about computer science, but <laughs> I think a big piece of call taking really is the human aspect, the ability to calm a caller down, to be empathetic when you have the time to listen, to kind of come up with a creative solution. So I worry a little bit about what it might look like to have kind of a machine learning or AI or even like phone trees, right? Sometimes certain centers have a phone tree and that can be useful, but it can also lead to frustration on the part of the caller. Like, I just need to talk to someone to help me sort this problem out. So I, I like everything. I think there are trade-offs. It's certainly, even if it's good at classifying and coding the information, you're exactly right. You still have to coax the information out of a nervous caller sometimes. I don't think that the AI technology is there yet, even if it might be getting close on the uh, analyzing information side when it has the information. That's interesting, and, and it'll be interesting to see where 20, 30, 50 years from now that idea goes in this type of setting. But um, makes sense. And all these policy implications have, have given me and I hope our listeners quite a bit to think about and chew on. We've had a great conversation. Is there any last point or idea that you'd like to make sure that our listeners leave with or maybe a big idea that we didn't quite get to? Yeah, it's been great being on the show. So thank you. And sorry if I was a little long winded at times, but no, 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 you're great. There's a lot to talk about. In terms of two short last points, one is that I hope listeners leave the episode with a new appreciation for the role call takers play in public safety systems. They're not just conduits of information transfer, which they've been kind of talked about sometimes in certain circles, right? They're just passing on raw information. But that's not really what they're doing, right? They're critical frontline workers. They're making these crucial decisions. They can impact entire incident trajectories. And when we look at cases of police misconduct or problematic outcomes on the street level, I really hope moving forward, researchers, policymakers, even members of the public, look at that whole process, right, before the officer showed up. What happened on that call? How was that call handled by the call taker, the dispatcher? The whole thing. So we're really taking like a system level approach to understanding police action. And I'd say the second thing is I really encourage researchers to do more mixed methods research and engage in some form, if they can, of, of participant observation to kind of gain some of that institutional knowledge when they're doing their work. I didn't start this project thinking I'd do a causal inference study. I really just wanted to understand what the data looked like. And then I wanted to observe the variation among the call takers and test that. And, you know, it led me to a much more interesting question that I would not have had if I didn't actually go out into the world and, and see what was happening. I fully agree on uh, both points. These types of, of jobs are, are often overlooked in policy debates and policy discussions. And it's hugely valuable to um, really understand the context and the labor market that you're studying. So it's really cool that you were able to go in and, and work at, at this call center. I think we learned a lot, both from your rigorous data analysis, but also the, the insights you gleaned from talking to people and, and going through that training process. So just want to thank you again for taking the time to talk to us about your compelling work. And congratulations again on the well-deserved Vernon Memorial Award. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on your show. It was really fun to get to talk about the paper with you. So thank you. Yeah, it was great. And again, the paper is available in the 2022 summer issue of JPAM. Our guest today was Jessica Galuli, Assistant Professor of Sociology and Criminal Justice at Suffolk University in Boston. So take care. Thanks for listening and Happy New Year to everybody. 
Thank you for listening. This has been a production of JPAM, the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management, in conjunction with American University's School of Public Affairs. Please follow us on the APAM website and search for the JPAM podcast.